following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning to you all here in this room, and good morning to everybody on the live stream. I just want to say, along with, as Chris has mentioned many times prior to his sermons that I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that we can all worship together here in person. But for now, I'm, I'm thankful for the live stream technology and that we can put it to good use in the meantime. Uh, please turn in your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 40. This is where I will be focusing our time this morning. So let's uh, just go ahead and jump right in. This passage is the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the Baal worshipers in Israel. And before I read the whole passage, I just want to set the stage a little bit. We are about 75 years after the splitting of the kingdom of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. Our scene in Mount Carmel takes place in the northern kingdom and Ahab is currently reigning as the king of the northern kingdom. He is not a good king. In fact, he's a very bad king. And just to see how bad he is, it's helpful to look at how the word of God describes Ahab. Uh, so let's look there. This is 1 Kings chapter 16, 29 through 34. I'm going to read that for you. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So, yeah, you can see that Ahab is a bad guy. Chief among his acts of disobedience were marrying a Canaanite woman, building an altar to Baal, and leading the people of Israel to follow him in worshiping Baal. Not to mention that it was on his watch that the city of Jericho was rebuilt, which God warned the people of Israel never to rebuild. So in this context of this wicked king, God then sends the prophet Elijah to confront wicked Ahab. Elijah confronts Ahab multiple times throughout his reign. The first confrontation between King Ahab and Elijah is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, where Elijah simply comes to Ahab and, and declares to him that God is bringing a drought upon the land. This drought is a direct rebuke of Ahab's worship of Baal. 
Baal was believed by the Canaanites to send rain and bring forth produce from the ground. And God was making it known to Ahab that if he will not follow the true God and acknowledge him as the one who brings forth every blessing, including the rain and food from the ground, then God would not allow it to rain at all. Now, three or so years into this drought, God then calls Elijah to confront Ahab again. And this encounter is the confrontation in our passage this morning. With all this in mind now, listen as I read God's word. We are in 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. This is the word of God. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let, the, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two says of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water 
and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray. God, your word is thick with meaning for us to ponder. So as we think about this passage from your word this morning, by your spirit's effective work, change us. Cause us to see you more clearly. Cause us to understand ourselves by the illuminating light of your word. Cause us to understand the work of your redemption. And may we live conformed to your will and to your commands. Amen. So for the rest of our time this morning, this is where we're going. We're going to look at this passage and and answer two questions as we probe the depths of all that is going on here. The first question is, what does this passage teach us about God? And the second question is, what does this passage teach us about God's plan of redemption? Okay, so for the first question, what does this passage teach us about God? Well, let, let, and to answer that, let's just consider some of the attributes of God we see on display here. We see his sovereignty. From verse 36, we see that Elijah has done all of this. He, he sets up the whole contest on Mount Carmel according to the word of the Lord. We understand that God has planned this miraculous event on Mount Carmel, and it has been God's idea all along. Elijah, he didn't come up with this on his own. He's not testing God here. Rather, because of Elijah's statement in verse 36, we understand that God must have somehow given Elijah at least some level of idea or some level of instruction ahead of time for how this mountaintop showdown would unfold ahead of time. And Elijah responded in obedience and faith, knowing that God is sovereign and that his plans will certainly come to pass. Because God is sovereign, Elijah knew that God would be victorious in this contest with the prophets of Baal. We also see another attribute, God's jealousy for his own glory. He will not be mocked. God controls the rain as seen in the drought, and he controls the fire as seen in the fire that fell upon the altar. Ironically, Baal worshipers believed that Baal ruled these elements of fire and water. But God saw fit at this time and place to demonstrate that they are wrong in a spectacular way. 
it is, and it is right for us to marvel at what this miracle would have looked like. The fire from heaven coming down, consuming everything, and not, not just the bull, but the altar itself, the stones, and the water too. This was clearly a supernatural fire with extraordinary abilities beyond what any man-made fire could have accomplished. The incredible, dramatic nature of this miracle that God performed was to underscore the reality that God, that, that Baal is not God and that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel is the only true God. The fire, the fire miracle on the altar that Elijah built stands in sharp contrast to the powerless inaction of the false God, Baal. God alone is to be worshiped. In this passage, we also see another attribute we see the patience of God. It, it's helpful to know, as we think about the patience of God, that, that the book of First and Second Kings was written during the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. This was a time when it would have been easy for believing Israel to fall into the false belief that God had forgotten them, that he had abandoned his promises to them. So the author of these books is writing to exiled Israel to remind them of God's wonders and promises throughout their history. He is a patient God, and his promises will still come to pass even while many of Israel goes their own way in rebellion against God and in unbelief. So here in today's passage, 1 Kings 18, this account of the events on Mount Carmel is one of those reminders of God's patience amidst a rebellious people. How does our passage demonstrate the patience of God exactly? Well, the truths that are demonstrated in this scene on Mount Carmel, they don't really show anything new about God to his people. They already knew that he was the true God. This had been proclaimed and demonstrated repeatedly throughout the centuries. The people of Elijah's day, they would have known about God's covenant with Adam in the garden to crush the serpent's head. They would have known of God's calling of Moses at the burning bush. They also would have known of God's promise to David to establish an everlasting kingdom. And yet, during a time of great apostasy in Israel, when Baal is widely worshipped among the Israelites, God chooses to perform yet another miracle to further demonstrate that which he has already made clear throughout history. He bears with his people in demonstrating again and again that he alone is worthy of worship. God is patient with fickle Israel to continually remind them of his covenant love for them and of his faithfulness to his promises. In the, in, in the midst of widespread unbelief, God patiently calls Israel back to repentance and faith. And while this account was originally intended to comfort exiled Israel, this reminder is, of God's patience is also, a remind, is also a helpful reminder for the church as well. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When we experience temptations to not believe, all that God has promised us through Jesus Christ is true. God is faithful to remind us of his promises repeatedly through his word, just as he faithfully reminded the generations of Israel of his enduring covenant faithfulness and his redeeming love. 
And while we're on the subject of thinking through how God is patiently reminding his people of his faithfulness to his promises, notice another beautiful example of this here in the story. Look at verse 31. How does Elijah build the altar? He, he uses 12 stones to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. Furthermore, in verses 33 through 35, he has four jars of water dumped three times for a total of 12 jars worth of water used to drench the bowl and the altar. This second appearance of the number 12 is also likely a pointer again to the 12 tribes of Israel. And all this comes during a time when the kingdom is divided. At this time in history, the 12 tribes are not unified. They are not a unified entity. There is strife and discord and rebellion. And yet God is reminding Israel that even though there is division among them, he is not done with them. And he is still God of all of them, all 12 tribes of Israel. So we've seen how this passage shows us God's sovereignty, uh, his, his jealousy for his own glory, and his patience toward his people. Now, with that in mind, let's move then to the second question I mentioned. What does this passage teach us about God's plan of redemption? 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 40, teaches us that while mankind deserves God's punishment for our sin, God in his mercy has made a way for us to be forgiven. So I'll just say that again. While mankind deserves God's punishment for sin, God in his mercy has made a way for us to be forgiven. In short, this passage is showing us the gospel. Let me show you how we see all that in the text. As I said earlier, Ahab was a bad, wicked king. And the the nation followed him in Baal worship. But let's not think of ourselves as better than them. Think about what they were doing. They, They went after the gods of their age. They believed the lie that the world offers better gods, better things to worship than the Lord God himself. And so all of us in this room and in the world at large, we all face these same temptations regularly today. And when we face these temptations, when when any individual faces these temptations, there are, in a sense, three responses. And, And we see all three of these responses in the text. We can blatantly worship false gods, or we can try to mix in the worship of false gods with our worship of the true God, or we can reject the worship of the false gods entirely and worship the true God alone. So how do we see a, how, how do we see these in, in the text? Well, when you think about um, what it means to just blatantly worship false gods, uh, th- this is typically a blatant going after false gods. This is typically exemplified by individuals uh, that have wholly rejected Christ for the alluring lies that the world offers. Whether that in our modern day, that could be in, you know, uh, monetary success, beauty, power, a carefully crafted reputation, and the list of modern counterfeit gods goes on. The world, all, the world offers many things that promise lasting satisfaction, and these things, though, serve to dull our awareness of 
of mankind's actual need for restoration to God. And so an example of this type of just blatant, blatant embrace of the world's lies in, in, in this passage today and, and how that dulls our, our understanding of what we need in Christ for restoration to God is Ahab. If you look at uh, verse 17, we see that Ahab calls Elijah a troubler. Elijah, Elijah's reply is that Ahab is actually the real troubler. And this, this use of the word troubler is important because it's, it's an intentional callback to the sin of Achan after the fall of Jericho in Joshua 7. You may know the story of Jericho and Achan. Israel miraculously defeats Jericho and then destroys the city and its inhabitants entirely. But, also, but God also gave the command. Nothing was to be taken or plundered as a possession from the Jericho remains. But Achan chose to take some plunder from the destroyed city in defiance of the commands of God. And as a result, Israel was defeated in their very next conquest. God judged Israel through military defeat on account of Achan's sin. And so Joshua rightly called Achan as the one who has troubled Israel. And now Ahab's thinking is so deluded by his Baal worship that he has the audacity to blame Elijah for the drought. The irony is even deeper when we consider that it was Ahab, it was, like I said earlier, it was on Ahab's watch that Jericho was rebuilt, also in defiance of the commands of God regarding the destruction of Jericho. Ahab is wrongly calling Elijah and Achan, and Elijah's reply is fitting. Ahab is the real troubler, and Achan here. Ahab has overseen the rebuilding of Jericho and has turned to worship Baal. Ahab is to blame for the drought, not Elijah, but because of Ahab's wholesale uh, buy-in to Baal worship and idol worship, his his conscience is suppressed and he does not understand that he has led Israel astray and that his sin has brought the drought upon the land. Paul has a similar warning along these lines in Colossians 2.8. It's apt for for this passage here. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. With worldly philosophies, we, like Ahab, can misidentify the problem of sin and the solution. Fallen mankind buys the lies of the world, hook, line, and sinker. An unbelieving world wonders, why, why do we need to think about forgiveness from God and a restored relationship with him? We already have our joy, satisfaction, security, comfort in fill in the blank. This is what blatant unbelief is. It's, re- it's a rejection of Christ and embrace of what the world offers. If this describes you, turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And, I, and if, you don't, if you don't know what I mean by this, I'm going to be talking more about the good news of Jesus soon. And so as I said moments ago, 
there are blatant forms of unbelief, but there's also subtle forms of unbelief that are just as soul-crushing as, as blatant unbelief. And this we also see in our passage. Uh, we see it when, when Elijah uses the word limp. This is when we limp between the false gods of, uh, of the idols of our hearts and the true God. Elijah calls out King Ahab and the people for this in verse 21. Elijah asks, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? This theme of trying to hold two opposing beliefs at once is consistently warned against throughout all of scripture. Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters in Matthew 6.24. James also says, keep oneself unstained from the world in James 1.27. It is, it, we, we know this from scripture's testimony and we also know this just from our life experience that it is tempting to find a way to somehow merge a trust in God with a trust in other things, but this is still idolatry. So we're, whether we're all in on believing the lies of the world or we are subtly mixing in the lies of the world with a trust in Jesus Christ, the result is the same before our holy God. God's right response to our sin is his judgment. We see that, and then we see this principle of God's judgment for sin in our passage this morning in two ways. There's, there's actually two judgments in this passage. So let's look at one of those first. So one of these judgments for sin is seen in verse 40. The slaughtering of the hundreds of prophets of Baal is a brutal scene. And I recognize that it, it is probably the most startling aspect of this whole account. What's happening here is Elijah is carrying out the execution of the false prophets of Baal. He is obeying God's commands to Israel for how to handle false prophets that, that are laid out in Deuteronomy 13. Having been soundly defeated in this mountaintop contest, the prophets of Baal have been shown quite publicly to be false prophets. And Elijah, as God's prophet, executes swift judgment upon them. And the significance of this judgment is made all the more symbolic when we consider that this slaughter of the false prophets occurs in the brook Kishon. You see that in verse 40. Since this occurred during a multi-year drought, we can guess likely that this brook was a trickle or maybe even bone dry. And looking immediately ahead, if you were to look at the passage right after this, so verses 41 through 45, we see that God, he actually does. He ends the drought with a great rain. And this would have, ending the drought with a great rain, this would have filled the brook and flushed the bodies of these false prophets out of the land and into the Mediterranean Sea. So God is symbolically joining with Elijah in completing the full purge of these false prophets from the land. And this is a foreshadowing of the fate that awaits every human soul who dies never having placed their faith in Christ. This is eternal judgment from God in hell. And this sobering reality of God's eternal judgment points us to the seriousness of idolatry and the weight of God's holiness. He, he does not tolerate idolatry, and the worship of false gods. 
But this then brings us, I said there was two judgments in this passage. This brings us to the other judgment. And the other judgment is found in verses 30 through 38. This is Elijah's preparation of the altar and burnt offering and the subsequent supernatural fire that consumed it all. I call this a judgment because these events in, in these verses, they, they very closely follow a lot of the instructions for burnt offerings that God gave to priests in different parts of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For example, consider that a bull has been cut into pieces, placed on an altar, and is, is offered in the evening. These are all standard aspects of sacrificial procedure. And, and this is even made more clear that when you look at the author of this account, they even describe this as a burnt offering and an oblation. And this is sacrificial language that is used multiple times throughout the passage indicating that this is, uh, this is following the procedure of burnt offering and that's no accident. The whole point of the burnt offerings in the Israelite sacrificial system was to provide a way for God to judge the people's sin through a substitute. So God's judgment for sin was on display in, in the sacrificial system each time an offering took place, but also God's mercy was on display in, in, these, in these systems because God's judgment was not poured out on the people or the person, but Rather, God meted his judgment onto an animal as a substitute. But I do want to point out that in this miracle account, there is one notable exception to standard sacrificial procedure. And it is the absence of an Israelite priest who would light the fire to burn the offering on the altar. Elijah is a prophet not a priest. So he is respecting the office of priest and does not offer a fire to burn the bull, but instead God himself offers the fire. And it was a stunning supernatural fire that burns up the bull and even the 12 stone altar and the 12 jars worth of water. The bull, the altar, the 12 stones, and the water they all receive God's fire judgment in the place of Israel. God himself, in this miracle, steps into the priestly role and offers the burnt offering to himself, making atonement for Israel's Baal worship and demonstrating that he is God and Savior of his people, not Baal. This offering that God offers up to himself fulfills Elijah's prayer in verse 37, where he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God makes atonement for Israel, and their hearts do turn back to him. This is far from simply an awesome display of God's power, just some kind of cool event. This, this miracle on Mount Carmel has a very deep meaning. God offers a sacrifice to himself to make atonement for his people. And this prefigures the priestly role that Jesus Christ will one day fill 700 years in the future of this event as he, the God-man, 
offers himself up to the Father as a once and for all substitutionary atonement for the sins of everyone who puts their faith in him. So in this miracle, God, he, he not only vindicates his name against the Baal worshipers, but he also brings an offering with, with he himself serving as the priest to make atonement for Israel's Baal worship. Israel's response in verse 39 to the miraculous burnt offering is the only right response, of course. They fall on their faces, having been shown in a mighty way that which they should have already known. They profess their faith. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Their hearts are turned back to God and they repent and profess their faith in their God and Savior. So these two judgments, the judgment of the false prophets and the judgment of the birth of the burnt offering, show the two paths before God that all people face. In one act, we see God's judgment on mankind in the purging of the false prophets of Baal from the land. In the other, we see God's judgment on a substitute, on a bull and a 12-stone altar to satisfy God's wrath for Israel's limping, unbelief, and idol worship. Similarly, each person who has ever lived will face one of these two judgments. You will either face the judgment of God with no substitute. This is eternity in hell. Or you will face the judgment of God through Jesus Christ, in which Jesus faces God's judgment for your sin as a substitute on your behalf. As I discussed discussed earlier in this passage, we see at least three of God's attributes. I mentioned his sovereignty, his jealousy for his own glory, and his patience. But let me add a fourth. We see God's mercy. We are reminded that God, while he could rightly judge all of mankind for our rebellion with no means of reconciliation, he has instead made a way for us to be forgiven. And with New Testament eyes, we, know, we look at this passage and we know that this forgiveness is offered to all through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. What a glorious and perfect, perfect hope we have in Christ. So as I wrap up my discussion this morning of, the, of how this passage teaches us about the gospel and God's plan of redemption, I just want to make one more observation. I know that for me, and you you can probably relate to this, when I read an account like this, I just think about how cool it would be to see God's power on display in an event like that. And it would. It would be astonishing to see such a, a striking miracle. But when I think that, part of me is forgetting about the incredible power that we, we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, miracle accounts such as this one on Mount Carmel should generate in us awe and draw up our hearts in worship as we see God's power on display. That's true. We, we should respond that way. But the reality is God has, the, the, these demonstrations of, of his power are not God's chosen historical norm. He has not chosen to regularly show his power in these stunning, miraculous ways. But his power is on regular display in a very significant way. Consider Romans 1.16. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So church, remember this. God has saved you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you are all demonstrations of his power to save sinners. Each time God saves a sinner. And not only that, each time you see him working in your own life, but in the, and in the lives of believers around you, maturing them and growing them in Christ-likeness, remember that this is nothing to overlook or take for granted. Know that this is God displaying his power on a scale on par with and even surpassing that of the miracle at Mount Carmel. Let's pray together. God, we are, we are stunned by your power in this passage, fire from heaven consuming everything in, in a powerful statement of your atoning work on behalf of Israel for their, for their years of idol worship and turning away from you. And, and so in the same way, we, we recognize your patience toward us. We recognize your work in us. We recognize the grace of the gospel that you have offered to all. And, uh, and, and we also recognize that it is your power at work when you, when you save us and when you sanctify us. And so we don't want to take these things for granted. We want to, um, to see these things as the, the amazing acts of your grace and power that they are. And, uh, and of course, one day we look f- forward to the day when you make all things new and, uh, and we will no longer struggle with sin and, um, and you will make everything uh, perfect in Christ. But until that time, we, we meditate on these things and we seek to uh, live in light of them and proclaim them. In Jesus' name, amen.